you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Earlier this year, uh, we had the stomach bug roll through our family, and I got to miss the week that would have been the David and Bathsheba story. And I was, I was kind of glad we I didn't have to preach that one. And then when we got COVID, I missed the story of uh, the virtuous woman, and would love to have preached that. And then last week, Todd brought this idea of wisdom from James, and, and I would have loved that. Somehow, these texts didn't get missed, and, and they are, um, they're a doozy. They're ones that we want to, instead of saying, this is the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God, we want to say, thus ends the reading of the word, because it is hard to say, thanks be to God, after you read the Job story and some of the questioning that's happening to Jesus. These, these texts get at what has been the problem of all problems for biblical scholars, for theologians and for philosophers. Its shorthand is the problem of evil. The, the bigger question is, is evil and suffering, uh, natural evil in the world, uh, supernatural evil through, uh, through demons and evil spirits, uh, sickness and suffering, death and loss, and how we as people can hurt each other. And it's been the thing that uh, millions of pages have been uh, been marked up trying to deal with, and yet we, we always leave with a bit of dissatisfaction. Book after book has been published to, to, to try and claim the answer to the problem of evil, and they always leave us lacking. But uh, I'm going to try to do in the next about 13 minutes what these scholars have done with their whole life, which is deal with the problem of evil, point you to the gospel, and then come to the table. And I hope to do it through our four texts that we've had read today. Uh, and if I am unsuccessful at it, please do come and let me know. I, I will, uh, uh, will not be hurt. Uh, I will instead uh, delight in, in uh, continuing the discussion of these texts with you. These texts that, uh, that in these moments we can begin to ask ourselves, how do we understand evil? How do we understand sickness and suffering? And, and maybe they invite us to do it uh, a bit detached from the actual sickness and suffering in our lives. When I'm at the hospital with you, I don't want to fix theology in the room. That is not the time for me to say, like, that's not really how this works. Let's talk about that. Uh, so in our, our moments like this, maybe we can step back and say, what do we actually believe about these things? I wish the Bible painted a consistent picture the whole way across. And then we could just say, this is what the Bible says. But much like every single issue we have, if, if we pick one verse out of context, we can make the Bible say almost anything. And we can make God out to be uh, wholly uh, uninvolved in our lives. We can make God out to be uh, the very author of every single bit of evil in our lives. Or we could uh, bring God somewhere in the middle of all that. The Bible does not have a singular witness to the problem of evil. Our psalmist today thinks they know uh, how to deal with the problem of evil. God, I am good enough. 
I am virtuous. I don't hang out with those people. I don't sit with the scoffers over there. I am good enough so I can trust that you won't bring bad things to my life. Praise Yahweh. But the problem is we know that's not the case. First of all, uh, the text shows that very often we are not virtuous enough. We are not good enough. But then thank goodness God tells us that we don't have to be good enough. That even though we never will be, he can make us good enough. This text presumes that God is the one who controls evil and suffering, and it's on the basis of our virtue. The book of Job invites us to consider evil and suffering through the lens of a story that we get the whole picture for, but Job only gets part of the picture. Today we read primarily from Job 2. It uh, picks up after the events of Job 1. In Job 1, uh, we have this heavenly pantheon meeting where the angels and, and God get together and then the adversary comes, this uh, one that we will often call the devil or Satan, but here it's the adversary, and, and says, uh, let me have at somebody. I can get them to deny you. And the, the conversation between them is about this man named Job, who is, as the text says, completely virtuous, without blemish, a person who will, uh, in chapter one it talks about just in case his kids sin, he goes regularly and offering, offers up uh, sacrifices to make sure that even they're atoned for. In many ways, this is the story that's like uh, when your, your parents used to tell you, a long, long time ago, there was somebody who so-and-so. This is a, a moral story through the lens of Job's life. And the narrator tells us that Job is blameless and that uh, the devil and God have this discussion and coming out of it, uh, the adversary is sent out uh, to go and test Job. And here's the test. In chapter 1, he loses his camels. He loses his sheep. He loses his sons and his daughters and his daughters-in-law. He loses every possession he has except for his marriage to his wife. And then we fast forward to chapter 2, and we get the exact same scenario. Uh, the adversary has come back up to the heavenly pantheon, back in the presence of Yahweh. Uh, okay, that, that didn't work. He didn't curse you. But, but, but let me have Adam again. And the text says that God says, okay, just don't kill him. And so the adversary goes out and afflicts him with painful boils and lesions and, and causes him to suffer such that he takes pottery and breaks it and scratches at these boils and lesions in order to try to find some relief. And his wife, saying what I think many would say if we understand God to be the author of our suffering, is curse God and die. And Job says, I think you're foolish. God has given us good, and God has given us bad. In chapter 1, he says, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. And we, we put these passages in songs really easy. It was really popular in the early 2000s. Uh, I wish I could sing like Savannah and, and this crowd up here. But there's a song that talks about, he gives and takes away. It's like this whole 
praise and worship chorus. But the problem is, it's poor theology from the book of Job. He gives and maybe he allows to be taken away. What Job never sees is the story that the narrator gives us. That it is not God punishing him for some uh, thing he has done. It is the work of evil in the world. And we're going to see this conflict for the rest of the book of Job between the people who don't see the story and then uh, the narrator's point of view. They're going to all keep coming, basically saying, you thought you were righteous, but you weren't righteous enough. What did he do? Surely he did something wrong for this to happen. This is still the same question that's asked in the gospel days. Jesus, tell us who sinned, him or his father? This Picture that it is God who afflicts us with things because we're not good enough. That we have done wrong things. That we are not worthy of flourishing. The book of Job tells us that the problem isn't what we've done. It's the problem of the work of evil in the world. There is natural evil and supernatural evil. Jesus will say, it was neither of them We want you to flourish, to be healed, to be whole, to have light and life. We slip pretty easily into what did I do wrong? Why is this bad thing happening to me or to this person I love, to this adult child of mine, to this friend, to this whomever? Why why was I not good enough? And then we also fall into the other problem, which is, why is God doing this to me? Or, we frame it another way. God's doing this to me, and I don't know why, but it's okay, because God has a plan. And we put at God's feet uh, that cancer diagnosis, that kid dying, that horrible thing, and we say that God has a plan. And if you pick a verse or two out of the middle of uh, different parts of Scripture, you can make a compelling case that God has a plan. He will at times call particular people and have a very particular calling on their life. We especially can think of the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah, it's a very specific calling that none of us would want. We would never want to look like Jeremiah, but we'll use the verse from his his namesake book to talk about God knowing the, the plans he has for us. And that creeps in where when we're in the hospital room, God has a plan. When, uh, when we experience loss, God has a plan. Uh, for me, this was the theology most of my life until uh, when I was in the middle of youth ministry, uh, we had a student uh, whose, parent, whose mother had died uh, from a long battle of cancer and uh, dad remarries from someone he met online and uh, ultimately uh, kind of try to raise their son together. And he's, he's a wild kid and loud and boisterous and doesn't listen. And so one day, uh, for, to discipline them, they tie him to a tree for 24 hours in the middle of uh, a forest fire season with smoke everywhere, and this kid dies tied to a tree. And before we could gather people to the church, before we had even gotten in the chapel, we had opened it up for students to come, we hear, God has a plan God has a reason he wanted him. As if God uh, made these people 
sin in this way. This is the theology of uh, some of our other friends and other traditions, that God has predestined everything. That everything is part of God's grand agenda. And so you have to sit and you have to ask, why? Why did God do this and why did God cause that? But that is not our theology. Our theology is that there's this divine dance that God, uh, God created us in his image and we rebelled against his love. And ever since then, God has been trying to draw us back to this place of love and light and flourishing. And that, that uh, we are given uh, grace upon grace and yet we are given free will to go and make some decisions. That things we do have consequences that... Uh, that impact us. But even beyond that, we believe that there is this cosmic battle between good and evil and that God allows evil to happen. This is the sticking point for our theology and it's where Richard and I always talk about holy mystery. No one has ever settled why God lets evil still happen. I'd love to give you the wrapped up, easy answer of why God allows it. And yet he does. Both natural and supernatural evil at, at places all around us. Things that uh, are real obvious and things that are insidious that cause suffering and pain and sorrow. And so for, for most of the narrative of Scripture, the picture is God trying to draw us up out of our suffering and our sickness and our death and our despair and draw us to himself, that, that God is working in and through us as part of this cosmic battle. And the answer is in Christ. The author of Hebrews talks about how God had revealed himself through law and through the angels and through the prophets, but now reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ. This person who would suffer for us to bring us out of our suffering. Who would, uh, the one who is holy, that would make us holy. The one who has defeated the power of sin and death, who has won the battle but the war still goes on until the time when things are made right. And so Jesus took on flesh for you and I and tried to explain what was going on to the people in his life who tried to explain uh, problems of evil in their life and all the various ways we suffer and we hurt one another. And the text he uses today is a text about divorce. And it's a text that has been weaponized by the church to hurt people. It's a text that uh, is culturally bound and that requires us to understand what was going on and, and is a text that uh, we have uh, done a poor job of appropriating in a way that is life-giving and honors God's desires. The text is pretty specific that it's a text about people who uh, would leave their spouse to go marry another. 
In our traditions, we have used this text to talk about somebody getting married way down the road past their divorce, right? This is how we uh, might use uh, that text. And and that's really not what it's about. It's about uh, us abandoning this partnership and, and love that we have and going and giving that to someone else. And it's rooted in a society where this uh, is even worse than it is for us today, where uh, so often the man leaves the woman and leaves her uh, completely abandoned. She's no longer part of her father's home, and now she is no longer part of her husband's home. Jesus says, terrible. It's terrible. And we suffer. And the church has used it as a tool of even more suffering and has failed to offer grace and light and life. I love that the text that comes after it is this picture of of maybe Maybe the greatest hope of all of today's scriptures is this time where the the people all around Jesus want to bring their kids to him and the apostles go, no, take them away. He's too busy to be with your little kids today. And he says, no, bring them to me. For this this is what the kingdom is like, is someone who turns to God in hope, who has childlike innocence and faith and looks to me. And then we know that he goes to the point of death for us to offer us uh, participation in this kingdom that he's been explaining. He is raised from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death. He ascends to reign and then gives his spirit that we might know God's love in the midst of pain and suffering as we wait for new creation. Our God did not cause our pain and suffering. Our God took on pain and suffering that we might be set free. Our God took on literal death. And our God will ultimately make things right. But we're left with the great mystery of of why. Why is pain and suffering not gone? Why does God not step in at some miraculous points when he does at others? We pray these bold prayers and at times we'll see this person healed and not this person. We'll pray these prayers for this relationship to be fixed and this one will be and this one won't. And so we are left with a lot of holy mystery. We're left with the problem of evil. We're left with faith seeking understanding. Looking like little children to the one who suffered for us. And the one who grieves with us in our suffering. The one who weeps when we hurt one another, who mourns when the powers of evil afflict us. The one who died for us and who meets us at this table every week to offer us grace, to sustain us, to to fill us, and to point us back to him. Would you pray with me? Holy and loving God, you created us in your image. You breathed into us the breath of life. You gave us one another as uh, 
helpmates and partners. You put us in a place of flourishing where things were good and right. And we rebelled against your love. And ever since, you've been trying to rescue us out of the effects of that. You have waged a cosmic battle. And at the same time, you dwell near to us. You hear our cries and groans. You comfort us with your spirit. And yet, in many ways, you are still a mystery. Lord, give us faith that seeks understanding and give us eyes to see and hearts that will understand. And yet, when we don't, give us faith for the day ahead. Help us trust that you never desire our suffering, that you desire our flourishing. Lord, as as the church, give us words of grace for those in our lives who are suffering, to sit and uh, dwell with them, to not offer easy platitudes that uh, put their suffering on you. Help us be as the little kids who come to you with hope. Help us come to you and then to go forth to bear witness to your kingdom. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who intercedes on our behalf and by the power of your Holy Spirit that sustains us in the middle of all that happens. Amen and amen.